My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. How about a girl boner quickie? August here, and I'm back today to share a few thoughts that might ruffle a few feathers because I'm not a fan of the love languages. Yes, I'm talking about one of the best-selling relationship books of all time. If the love languages have had a positive impact on your relationships, great. I'm happy for you. Please keep at it. If they don't quite speak to you, though, and you're not quite sure why, or you'd like some solidarity, this episode is for you. You can keep it in mind next time someone drops the love language terminology. The same goes for those of you who appreciate the love languages, but want to hear another view. So first, what are the love languages? If you're not familiar, the love languages were created by Gary Chapman, an evangelical Southern Baptist pastor whose book of the same name first released in 1995. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list for close to a decade. And the basic concept is this. Chapman believes that each of us has a primary love languages, one of five options, words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, quality time, or physical touch. You take a quiz that has questions like, when you come home after a long day, would you rather receive a hug or a compliment from a partner? After telling your score, your primary love language is revealed. So if your love language is physical touch, you want to be shown love through cuddling, sex, and so on. If it's acts of service, you feel most loved when someone runs an errand for you or changes a tire. If it's words of affirmation, praise makes you feel the most loved and so on. First, here's what I like about the concept. It's super important to consider a partner's preferences, needs, and values, and the ways they feel most cared for. The rest, I'm not so hip on. Here are a few reasons why. Problem number one, they lack sound research. Chapman's expertise stems from his work in evangelical Christianity, which tends to embrace things like heteronormativity and traditional gender roles. The analysis for the book came from the author's work counseling couples in his church community. And I have nothing against his parishioners, of course. And also, anecdotal evidence can be rad. But that's still a very limited scope, one pool of very like-minded people. Yet the takeaways are presented as mainstream, beyond the church community. Few people even realize where these ideas came from. In a New York Times article from 2011, Chapman shared that he wanted to speak in an approachable, non-academic-feeling way in the book, which I totally appreciate. But there are so many ways to do so without bypassing more in-depth or useful research. In a Psychology Today article, Associate Professor Dr. Tim Cole wrote, Despite the prevailing embrace of Chapman's ideas, little actual research has been done on the topic, and intuitively sensible ideas don't always hold up to empirical scrutiny. Cole highlighted a study that conflicts with Chapman's argument that relationships work best when two people have the same love language. That research also showed that while the vast majority of participants intuitively understood their partner's love languages, the knowledge didn't lead to better outcomes. Problem number two, the love languages are overly simplistic. They remind me of fad diets. Do you remember the blood type diet? It's based on your 
blood type, you get assigned a diet plan that focuses on certain foods and limits others. Similar to the love languages, fad diets lack nuance. Like the time my former roommate started eating mostly chicken and broccoli because her supposed diet type said these were her best options. Science doesn't back that diet up either, by the way. As fun as it can be to take quizzes and think about these things, I don't believe we have one primary way of feeling loved, or even two or three. I've tried to take the quiz several times and could barely answer a single question without wanting to add, it depends. I imagine the books and concept could work well for you if you have a clear need that isn't being met, but the ways we show and receive love depend on so much and very endlessly. And don't most intimate relationships need to be nurtured with time, kind gestures, thoughtful gifts, touch, and encouraging words? To me, that's another parallel with the diet industry. Balance, moderation, and tuning in to your body, or in this case, a partner, aren't nearly as marketable as your either A, B, or C. Problem number three is kind of a biggie. The love languages don't account for factors like trauma, privilege, or gender stereotypes. In a thoughtful blog post on the website, The Span of My Hips, the writer shared that one thing she feels is sorely missing from Chapman's understanding and definitions of love languages is an understanding of power, trauma, and emotional labor. I agree. I also think our type can be hugely impacted by social norms. What if you or a partner has learned from societal or religious messaging that women are supposed to serve, i.e. acts of service, and men aren't supposed to be outwardly emotional, which could fall into words of affirmation? I don't think that makes either of these your love language so much as an area of self-work you could stand to consider. For example, I dated someone once who grew up learning that women do all the housework, and then expected the same from potential partners. He also believed that women were all about money, so gifts. I don't think that's a love language. I think those are cultural beliefs worth changing. Even if all of that weren't the case, I'd much rather my partner express love in ways that make sense for both of us, and that if he's not sure, we talk about it, than because he believes I have a type. If you're rolling your eyes, that's okay. You're probably not alone. I ran a Twitter poll on this topic, and 55% of participants said they are a big fan of the love languages, 31% reported feeling neutral, and only 14% found them annoying or possibly harmful. So I'm a minority even in my own circles. One commenter added this, needs change as lives change. So do which love language we give and prefer to receive. I don't think it's a one and done. I love that idea, whether you use a particular love language to describe your wants and needs or not. A recent study for Hinge involving the general population showed that quality time is far, far more popular than the other love languages for all genders. If the books and concepts help people realize that prioritizing shared time is super important for nurturing a relationship, that's groovy. In a New York Times article, the one I mentioned earlier, Chapman gave this advice. The key to a successful marriage is a growing marriage. We are two different people. We are always going to have conflicts. A growing marriage is learning how to respect the other person, see them as a person also made in God's image. If both of you ask God to help you express your love every day and give the wisdom to process your differences, to me you will continue to grow through the years. 
I suppose that's where Chapman and I differ. He guides by his evangelical faith, and I'm a research and social activism junkie with spiritual leanings. We live and work in completely different circles, but we both do prize love and want the best for people. If I had to choose a love language for myself, it would probably be feminism because, to me, little is healthier for relationships of all kinds than equality, compassion, and respect. If the love languages don't jive with you, here are a few other books I'd recommend. Mating in Captivity, Unlocking Erotic Intelligence by Esther Perel. Perel is brilliant, and she has a fabulous podcast, too. Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women, and the Way Forward by Gemma Hartley. This one is on my to-read list. I can't wait to check it out. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention my own book, Girl Boner, which has a chapter on monogamous and non-monogamous relationships, featuring Dr. Megan Fleming and Dr. Lori Bennett-Cook, plus tons of tips for better sex, stronger communication, healing emotional wounds, and giving and receiving more pleasure. I also suggest checking out Dr. Megan's upcoming small group course offering, where the guidance and support will be customized specifically for you. Sign up for her mailing list to learn more at greatlifegreatsex.com. So was that good for you? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Drop me a note on my website, augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org, where you can also subscribe for occasional extras by email. You can also hit subscribe now in your podcast app to make sure you never miss a beat. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for another Girl Boner cookie soon. 